You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. If you've got your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 12. I'm going to go ahead and read the passage, and then I'm going to come back and talk a little bit, and then we'll read a little bit more. But I'm going to start with chapter 12, Matthew 12, starting with verse 14. The Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. That's a great way to start right there. That would be a good first line for a novel, wouldn't it? From the day they started, they were trying to kill him. The Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, because Jesus is aware of things, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here's my servant whom I've chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. I want you to circle that word justice. It comes up again. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice, circle that again, through, uh, through to victory. And in his names, the nations will put their hope. And then, right then, They brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's, not, he's, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive out demons? It's <laughs> a good question. So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the Spirit of God, excuse me, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. That's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So we're wrapping up a few weeks of talking about healing and the stuff Jesus did. I mean, Jesus did miracles, a lot of them. He did a lot of healing. He did a a lot of... uh, of deliverance. We began with the premise that Jesus actually meant it when he stood up in the synagogue one day and quoted from Isaiah 61, the the prophetic word that became his mission statement. I want to invite you to read this together with me. Ready? Go. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Those were not aspirations for Jesus or metaphors. This was the stuff he was already doing and the stuff that characterized his life on earth. And this is the stuff Jesus empowered his followers to do. He told them at his ascension that they would receive the same power and authority that he had and as they repented and received the Holy Spirit into their lives, which means that we who claim Jesus as Lord and Savior also have power through the Holy Spirit to proclaim good news to the poor and freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind and to set the oppressed free. And that is great news, friends. We who follow Jesus have power and authority. It's also a little intimidating. Until we understand ourselves as spiritual beings and until we understand that all healing is spiritual healing, We'll have a hard time believing that this is for us. Do we have to believe in it or, or to, to do the Jesus stuff? Do, in order to call ourselves Christian, does it really matter if I do this stuff? So let's think about that. I want to look again at, at Matthew chapter 12, beginning with verse 15. And I want to read those first few verses again in a version uh, that Scott McKnight uh, translated just earlier this year, was released earlier this year. I'm just so interested um, in how this version talks about parts of this prophecy. So in 15, uh, chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus, knowing, slipped away from there. Great crowds followed him and he healed them all. How many did he heal? All of them. And he rebuked them not to make him a parent, so to fill out what was said through Isaiah the prophet, saying, look, my young servant, whom, whom I chose, my loved one in whom myself was delighted, I will place my spirit on him and he will declare justice for the ethnic groups. That's the reason I wanted to read this version. It's a great way to translate the word for nations. He will neither strive nor make a racket, nor will anyone hear his voice in the plazas. He will not snap a broken reed, and he will not snuff out a smoking wick until he tosses out justice for conquering. And in his name, ethnic groups will hope. I'm just so interested in where this section begins with Jesus healing people and asking them not to talk about it. So is this Jesus giving me permission to ignore the Jesus stuff? Or is this Jesus saying that if you plan to be about the work of healing, which seems to be his thing, you need to know what you're talking about and how deep it goes? I think that's it. It seems to me he's telling us here that the end game of healing is not ultimately personal pain relief. That is not the end game of healing. There's a bigger purpose. We pursue personal healing, ours and others, because we want to see the nations healed. I know you remember back in February, there was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Asbury University, which is in Little Wilmore, Kentucky. It seemed to come out of nowhere. After a rather 
unremarkable chapel service that ended before noon. A few students stayed in the chapel to worship, and at some point, one of them confessed some things to some others of them. And as they began to confess and repent of things, their worship intensified. People walking by the chapel found themselves drawn in. By one or two o'clock that afternoon, it was still going, and classes were starting to be canceled. They saw students running across the campus to get back to chapel. It's often been described as a very gentle outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But as it unfolded, something like 70 or 80,000 people descended on Little Wilmore, population 6,000. And for 16 days, there was constant worship and testimonies and healings and salvations. There were these huge salvations. I heard one last week from somebody. He, he, he knelt to pray with a woman. She was Hindu. She had always been her whole life Hindu. I don't know why she found herself in Wilmore, but she was overwhelmed and she became a follower of Jesus that week. They eventually had to close the town because there was not room for all the people. Literally, not more room. And that's the story that's been told all these months since. But what no one had paid attention to until just recently, like just a couple of weeks ago, when stories were beginning to be compared, was what happened the day before the outpouring. Keep in mind, this was February, Black History Month. And every day during that month, Asbury University had planned an activity to highlight uh, some aspect of black history. And on that day, the day before the outpouring broke out, they had invited, the university had invited a historian from Lexington to come to Asbury for what is called a witnessing circle. Anybody heard of a witnessing circle? Yeah, I hadn't either. They tell me that a witnessing circle is a, is a public but deeply personal event that bears witness to the injustices that happened in a place. And in Lexington, the witnessing circle was first, it was first done at a public square that was once the epicenter of the slave trade in that state. The historian who was invited to come to Asbury University that day in February had done a lot of digging and he had archived the wills of many slave owners. And that day in Wilmore, he was invited to read the wills of folks who had lived in the county that Asbury is situated in. I want to give you just one example of a will that was read from a deed book dated May 16, 1820. John P. Aldrich doth sell and convey to Elizabeth Dickerson her, her heirs, and assigns forever the property here and after described. One set of dining tables, a half dozen Windsor chairs, three feather beds with all the sheets, two washstands, schoolroom furniture, one clock, one female slave named Casey, about 30 years of age, one male slave named Garnet, about 20 years of age, one female slave named Louisa, about 15 years of age. One girl slave named Anne, about six years of age. One other girl slave named Rachel, about five years of age. One boy slave named John, about 10 years of age. One boy slave named Luke, about eight years of age. One male child named Ned, about four months old. By estimation, the value of all that, $3,000. Bequeathed forever. Take a minute to let that sink in. As if they were no more than clocks and furniture. And Jesus said in our passage, 
How much more value are human beings than the sheep? I can't imagine it, and I can. How often have I valued people only for what they can do for me? So about 70 people attend that witnessing circle that day in Wilmore. And they listened to the reading of 20 wills from slave owners in their county, bequeathing slaves from one generation to the next like property. And after the wills were read, a guy named George, he was a student at the seminary, not the university, was called on to sing what is often called the Black National Anthem. It's a hymn. We all know it. It's, it lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring. You know the song? Yeah. It's a song of pain and hope that reminds people whose families have, have endured a lot that ultimately God is our country. George, the guy who sang it, is African American. And the reading of those wills had deeply moved him. So when it came time for him to sing, it was all very emotional for him. He said the service itself was very solemn, very understated. There wasn't much outward emotion, just this reading and then the singing of this hymn. God of our weary years, God of our silent tears, thou who hast brought us thus far on the way. And after that song, this witnessing circle quietly broke up, and the next day, the outpouring broke out. And last week, when I first heard all of this in the room where this was shared for the first time publicly, as I heard that, it was like, it all makes so much more sense. <laughs> This wasn't a random, the outpouring wasn't a random event on a random day in February. It was a breaking open of the heavens after a solemn and heartfelt and humble repentance. A repentance that was picked up the next day by an African American student who stood in that same space and sensed the invitation of God to confess some things. And God, hearing that one's confession, poured out lavishly. Surely, this is why Jesus came into his ministry saying, repent and believe for the kingdom is near. It's because repentance leads to healing and, just, and healing leads to justice and justice leads to deliverance from our baser demons and deliverance leads to awakening. And you can't unattach one part of that healing puzzle from another part and still get the whole picture. You can't decide that you'd like Jesus to heal you of whatever has you in pain or you to heal you of your disease but not deliver you of your demons but then not use you for the healing of the nations. It's all connected. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus says, for it has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, which is salvation, and release for the captives, which is deliverance, and recovery of sight for the blind, which is healing, and to set the oppressed free, which is justice, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which is awakening. It's all connected. 
And one of the spiritual maladies we need to seek healing for is the stuff bred into us over generations. The generational curses of racism and sexism and ageism and all the isms that hold back the tide of God's inbreaking kingdom. And just in case we think this is really what Jesus meant in the scene in Matthew, the writer says, look at Matthew chapter 12 again. Verse 21, in his name, the nations will put their hope. And the very next verse, then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. And all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Matthew makes a direct connection here between the healing of the nations and the deliverance that happens to one guy. There are 179 occurrences of deliverance in the Bible, both Old and New Testament. In the Old Testament, we find literal stories of deliverance from enemies and from those who have enslaved God's people, but that's just a setup for the spiritual deliverance we get ready for in the New Testament. The Old Testament stories are, are stories of deliverance from death and battle with others, but also in battle with sin. The New Testament Gospels highlight 12 individual stories of deliverance from demons, but beyond those, there are many other mentions of Jesus healing and delivering whole crowds of people. And we learn from all these stories that people get delivered and God does the delivering. <laughs> We discover that deliverance is something to rejoice in, to delight in, to sing about, to cry out for and long for. We find out we can be very close to our deliverance, but also very far from it. We also find out that God can be close to delivering us, but also very far from delivering us. And that which one we are depends more on us than on God. We learn that deliverance results in peace, confidence, relief, exultation. And that everything that's true of deliverance is true of repentance, which is a kind of deliverance. Repentance is the front end of deliverance. You should write that down. Repentance is the front end of deliverance. Without it, Pete Bellini says, you can't break the stronghold. In fact, Bellini puts the law of repentance in a group of four laws of what he calls four laws of deliverance. And when he calls them laws, he just, he just means to say that you, you pretty much don't find deliverance without these four things in it somehow. So deliverance begins at the cross, the law of the cross, with the admission that through the cross, sin and the devil and death are finished. So when we pray for deliverance, we do so backed by the victory of the cross. The law of the will says that God does not force on us anything we aren't willing to give up. It's what Matthew quoted back in verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. That's a, a metaphor that the prophet is using just to let us know that Jesus is not out to break tender souls or to, to force us into something before we've become ready at the level of our personal willingness. Likewise, a demon cannot make a person do anything they do not, to which they do not willfully agree. So learning the voice of God is pretty important. 
Knowing what he's likely to say and what he's not likely to say becomes critical to our healing. I remember, I've told you this story before about a friend of mine years ago came to me and said, I have found my soulmate. The problem was she was married to somebody else. I said, find that in the Bible because until I find it there, I can't support you. Learning the word of God and the character of God and the designs of God and then having a willingness to place our will beneath the will of God, that is critical. So while Jesus is the one who does the healing, it does seem like there's an important relationship between our will and his, which is not the same as saying that if you aren't healed, you must not have enough faith. Clearly that's not true. Every one of Jesus' disciples had faith and eventually they all died. <laughs> Paul had faith and he was never able to shake whatever infirmity he had. But somehow, it seems to me, there is a relationship between our willingness to receive the healing and God's willingness to give it. So what can we do to make healing a possibility in our lives now? I believe it begins where Jesus says it begins, with repentance. The law of repentance is where Jesus began all ministry. Repent and believe. This is the front end of all deliverance. It begins with my willingness to name aloud the demons that have pestered me and demonized me, at least the ones I'm aware of. It means deep soul searching for all those areas of my life that have not lined up with what I know to be true about Jesus and the kingdom of God. And then the law of power and authority. The authority is Christ, but he shares it with us. And this is what the religious leaders questioned when they saw Jesus doing the kingdom stuff. Look at verse 24. Jesus knew their thoughts. Well, they, they say, but, the, but then the Pharisees heard this. They said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, just mental note here, Jesus knows your thoughts, okay? Santa Claus probably doesn't, but Jesus does. Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. This just doesn't make logical sense is what he's saying. How can this kingdom stand? So if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, then okay, here's one. Who do your people drive them out by? Oh, don't you just love him for that? So let them be your judges. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And you need to reckon with that. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. And then Jesus says this, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. And you are either part of the healing of the nations or you are not. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, not in this age and not in the age to come. That is a serious charge. These guys were questioning the authority of Jesus to do the stuff Jesus was obviously doing by the power and under the authority of the Holy Spirit. And of that questioning, Jesus said two things. 
First, he said, if I was casting out demons under the authority of Satan, then Satan would be a house divided against itself, which makes no sense from a logical kingdom perspective. But of course, these guys doing the accusing of Jesus were humans. And humans do illogical human things all the time. Amen from those of you who know humans who do illogical things. We work against ourselves all the time when we deny the power that generational curses have over us and when we refuse to acknowledge the fear we walk in or the offense we carry. Listen, every time I carry an offense while I call myself Christian, I am a kingdom divided against itself. So no wonder these religious leaders could question Jesus on this idea. They were projecting what most of us do all day, every day. So first, Jesus said, if this is how you think, this makes no logical or kingdom-minded sense. And second, be careful of your justifications for living like this because when you start questioning the authority of the name of Jesus or the, or the power of the Holy Spirit, well, now you're treading on, in treacherous waters. So do you believe Jesus can heal or don't you? Do you believe he has power over the demons that demonize us or don't you? And do you believe that the way to peace is through the cleansing stream of repentance? Or don't you? Right here, I think it's important to notice the difference between unbelief and doubt. A guy named Reward Sabanda taught me this. I'm thinking about the guy who brought Jesus, his little boy who was possessed of a demon. You remember that guy? And that daddy begs Jesus to heal his boy. He tells Jesus, your disciples couldn't do it. But then he says, if you're able, help us. And Jesus says, all things are able for the one who trusts Jesus. And then the child's father cries out. This is the way McKnight words it in his translation. I trust, help me in my antitrust. I trust, Help me in my antitrust. And in that confession, Jesus consents and casts the demon out of the boy. And after the demon flops the guy around one more time, he's gone. Help me in my antitrust. That's the confession that broke the spiritual atmosphere that day. Antitrust is a good definition of unbelief and it helps us understand the difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt says, I trust you, God, but I cannot see what you see. Unbelief says, I don't trust you, God, even if I can see it. I don't trust what you have for me is better than what I have determined for myself. I don't trust that if I let go of this offense or resentment or pain or anger in my life that you will still do for that person what I want you to do for them, which is really smoke them. <laughs> that, friends, is what we have to figure out for ourselves before we can even take one more step into healing and deliverance waters. Do we trust? Do you trust that what God has for us is better than what we can imagine for ourselves. Four of us were at the New Room Conference last week. So much healing happens in that room. 
I got to tell you, because there's just so much openness and trust in the Holy Spirit's power and authority. It's kind of, it's almost uh, over, overwhelm. The day they told us about what happening with that witnessing circle, the room broke. It had been just this, just this quiet panel discussion, and then this happened. And George, he started singing the song, because somebody in the audience said, sing the song, and he started singing the song, and the room just broke. There was weeping, I mean, deep sobbing in the room. There were thousands of people in the room. And all the, all the ways we were all complicit in the sins of our fathers. It was not empty emotion. I need you to know that. It was trusting repentance. It was a willingness to let God be God and do what God does. I broke too. I mean, I wept and wept. I confessed things and sought healing for things I needed to seek healing for. It was a spiritual healing that I was after that morning. And I was just one person among thousands. And this went on for hours. That was Thursday. On Friday, the conference was supposed to be over at noon. And so you're kind of winding down. The worship leader stopped in the middle of a song. And he said, if you leave here with anything still hanging, if you don't lay it all on the altar, that's on you. Is there anything left? He just looked around the room. Is there anything left that you need to leave on the altar? It was a kind of, don't offend the Holy Spirit by walking away from this opportunity call. And while he was saying it, I knew he might have been talking to a lot of people, but he was at least talking to me. And I was thinking to myself, well, shoot. I thought I'd get out of here without dealing with that one really small, why does Jesus even care thing? But evidently, I'm going to have to cry one more time. I don't know why I bother wearing mascara at a new room. <laughs> so I went to the altar again, and I broke open that very hard place at the center of me where the spirit of offense is stored. I had just talked about it with my accountability group the week before. For a while now, I've noticed that I've been carrying something that feels like a big block of ice in the middle of me. It sits there. And the only word I can find to describe it is a kind of arrogance or maybe ego. Something that seems to want to convince me that I know right or that I am better or that I know you don't. And I know that thing has been there. Maybe for more than just my generation. I can think back in my childhood. And I know this is how my people handled things. There's all kinds of evil roots to it. Some of it's a kind of arrogance that refuses to admit the obvious. That things like racism get to all of us eventually. Why is that so hard to say without being defensive? It's why we pray for the healing of nations because we are one of the nations. And my spirit of offense also has fear roots and, and pride roots. And there are roots I can't name, but I know they're there because I can feel them feeding my worst tendencies, even the tendency sometimes towards self-hatred. It's how I know it's demonic in its origins because it wants to separate me from myself from the person God made and loves. I can tell you, I'm not possessed, but I am pestered by the evil that does not want my best. 
So I went to the altar on Friday morning and I got into a posture. Listen to me. I got into a posture that signals to my body that my life is under the lordship of Jesus. And I cried again deeply for the offense I have carried that I know about and am sorry for and have not been willing to let go of because I'm just so sure I'm right. I cried out, Lord, I am sorry for hanging on to this offense. I trust, but help my antitrust because I am not sure what you're going to do with the other people if I let go of this. I have faith, but help me believe in your power to heal. And Lord, deliver me from stuff that will poison me if I don't leave it here on the altar. And when I stood up from that place, I didn't necessarily feel different, but I knew I had one job, and it was to repent and then walk it out. And God had one job, to work into me what I've worked out. So I have to tell you, I believe in it, friends. I believe that Jesus still heals that Jesus wants to cast out the demons, not necessarily, if we call on Jesus, we're not possessed, but that pester us. That he wants to call them down. And I believe that somehow, sometimes, my willingness is connected to his willingness. I believe all healing is ultimately spiritual. And that it breaks loose among us as we confess our sins and become willing to live a different life. I believe that the spirit of offense is one of the worst ways the enemy lies to us. And I believe that healing cannot happen while you carry it. I also believe that in the end, you know, He says, Revelation 22, there will be a tree and it bears fruit, fruit in every season. It's the original uh, fruit of the month club tree. It's, and, and he says, and the leaves of that tree are for the healing of the nations. I believe that in the end, it's the healing of the ethnic groups that will usher in the kingdom And that somewhere back in February, in some little town nobody hardly ever hears about, there was a taste of it. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to we're going to have some moment for some 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 moments for confession. But here's what I want to say to you. I want to say, just wait just a second, just hold on just a sec, guys, because I just want you guys. I want you guys out here. I want you guys out here to have this time. And maybe, maybe some of you want to come to the altar. We're going to enter into a time of confession. Maybe you want to put your body in a place so that it signals to your mind that you are under the lordship of Jesus. Somebody needs to come to the altar. So come, come now as we begin to confess together. Lord, there are other people in this room. It's probably not just me. There are other people in this room who probably have this 
thing sitting in the middle of us that when we name it, when we say, yeah, that thing that you just described, that's, that's in me too. Yeah. And there are people in this room who do not know how to get rid of that thing. It's, a, it's just a chunk that sits in there that keeps us from going as far as you want to take us. It's, it's, a, it's a block of offense or a block of anger or a block of unforgiveness or a block of knowing best. A block of arrogance or ego. And there's no getting to you while it's there. I want to say again, the altar is here. You need to come and get on your knees and say, yep, that's me. That's me. What else do you need to repent of? Is it one of the isms? Where in your life are you refusing Jesus' entry because you, because you don't trust what he'll do? You know he's capable. You just don't trust what he'll do. He might ask you to go someplace you don't want to go, and you just don't trust it. And today's the day you need to say to him, God, I didn't realize how dangerous that is. I just didn't know. I did not realize how dangerous it is stand in front of you and say, I, I believe in you, but I don't trust you with my worst, with my fear. With my relationships. With my anxiety. With my call. with the gifts that are laid into my life. I don't trust you. Who needs to repent of that this morning? Who needs to repent of that? Jesus. Jesus. I want to give space for this. I don't want to rush too quickly past it. Lord, I believe. Help me in the places I don't trust. And help me, God, to believe, to actually believe what you say when you say that it's as simple as this, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just. Justice is your end game. And you will deliver us from all unrighteousness, cleanse us, and make us holy. God, help us to believe that beautiful promise. 
In the name of Jesus, you in this room are forgiven. Amen. If you're here at the altar, you are welcome to stay right here. You don't have to move. You stay right where you are. I want to say to the rest of you that as you come to take communion, I hope, I really hope, you will make use of this altar. It's a place where you can help your body to, to, become, to come under the Lordship of Christ. And in that way, your spirit does also. I'm going to ask for the bread. On the night Jesus gave himself up for us, he took bread. And he broke it and he gave thanks to his father for it. He gave it to his followers and he said, take and eat all of you. This is my body broken for you. For moments like this. So you could find wholeness. After supper, he took the cup and he gave thanks to his father in heaven for it. And he gave it to his followers and he said, drink from this, all of you. This is the cup of the new covenant. My blood poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink from this cup, remember me. And so, Lord, in, in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Christ Jesus, we offer ourselves also in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice, recognizing the very, we're going to pause just to let the kids come in. Hmm. Yeah. Because communion belongs to them too. There we go. We offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice. We trust the mystery, Lord, that Christ has died, but Christ is risen and Christ will come again. And we ask you, Jesus, to pour out your Holy Spirit over these gifts, your gift. Make them be for us the very body and blood of Christ that we might be for the world, the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. Make us one with each other, Lord, and one in union with your purposes for the world, for the nations, until Christ comes in his final victory and we feast at your heavenly banquet table. All honor and glory is yours, almighty God. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, We'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.